Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Being the first Friday of the month, we did Cook, Eat, Learn this morning. There was an educational part to that. If you, part, if you participated in that, there was a code for that of J3WC, and you can actually earn a quarter CME credit from going over and eating and learning about what you're eating and learning about culinary competencies. So J3WC, today's code for this conference is JTHQ. Both of those things are texted in. So JTHQ. Um, and we had a quiz this morning, as we do when we do culinary medicine presentations. There was a question, and the question was, name two whole grains and two refined grains, and describe a strategy you use to incorporate more whole grain into your diet. Selected at random and perused for accuracy was this one that said whole grains include barley and quinoa, which is actually a seed, and refined grains, white rice, and white bread. And our method of dealing with this, put quinoa in a salad, use millet rather than rice. This was a good answer, and there is a prize. And this was from Julia Lake. So, Julia. And the breakfast today was a uh, pan meal, as you know, a flat pan meal. And the idea was we would encourage you to make it ahead of time. These are containers to hold a week's worth of breakfast or whatever meals and bring them in. There you go, Julie. Thank you. Uh, without further ado, we have uh, a great speaker today. Andrew Crawford is a new member of our faculty, and he's got exciting things to tell us about the current evidence of the pharmacotherapy for weight loss. Uh, he's been a great addition to our weight center, our weight and wellness center, uh, where he's been participating. To introduce him is Rich Comey. Rich is a professor of medicine. You may know him formerly as the section chief in endocrinology, the program director of the internal medicine residency at one point in his career, and he also currently is the training director for the fellowship in endocrinology. Tell us about Andy. Well, good morning, everyone. I just want to say that the fact that an endocrine fellow won the prize, we didn't arrange that. <laughs> so, this looks very suspicious. Uh, so, so I'm delighted to introduce the newest member of our section, Andy Crawford, and I'll be very brief because I think Andy has a lot to tell us. He is a native of Rhode Island and got his bachelor's degree and his MD from Brown University in Rhode Island. Then he decided to visit some of the larger states, and he went to the University of Pennsylvania to do his uh, internal medicine residency and also his fellowship in endocrinology. And uh, his fellowship is actually an interesting place. That, that the, in that faculty are the thought leaders in thyroid cancer and male hypogonadism. So he's sort of rubbed shoulders with some of the bigger experts in endocrinology. Uh, in 2018, he won the Utica Research Award for his, in his fellowship. And um, he also had a case report which uh, was actually chosen as a presidential poster at the Endocrine Society meeting in 2018. So he did some really high-quality work in his fellowship. He also wrote a review on obesity management, and we're going to kind of hear the fruits of that, that today. Um, here, he's already teaching in three courses, in SBM, PBL, and in the advanced sciences capstone. So we put him to work as soon as he, as soon as he got here. And he has the endocrine's foray into the weight and wellness uh, center. So he's our connection there. So we're delighted to have him as a colleague and a, and a teacher. I actually uh, ran into him at the voting poll in Norwich and voted with his son, who's already, even at the age of 
three, I think, was, was already an interested civics uh, uh, guy. And today we're going to hear about his interest in uh, obesity management, and I think this is a topic all of us need to know a lot about. So, Andy, thanks. Thank you so much, Dr. Rothstein and Dr. Comey. Everybody hear me okay? All right. Well, thanks so much for the invitation, and thanks so much for coming out today. Really appreciate it. And um, so I'm going to give you a few updates today about weight loss uh, pharmacotherapy. So I want to set the groundwork to start out with. We'll um, give some background about weight management generally, and in particular, weight loss medication use. Talk specifically about the hypothalamic control of weight. Um, and then, obviously, specifically about the different medications that are useful for weight management. Uh, we'll talk about some different barriers to the uh, utilization of weight loss medicines. We'll go through a case that will illustrate some of the important points that I'll talk about. And then we'll specifically talk about some of the resources here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So this, uh, this slide is from the Centers for Disease um, Control, and this uh, really illustrates well what I uh, began to notice early on as a, uh, as a house officer at Penn and then um, proceeding on into my fellowship and now as a young faculty member that, you know, I'm seeing a lot of patients every day with type 2 diabetes, and um, what, I, what I noticed was that, you know, these patients by and large um, suffer from obesity, and it was not just diabetes. It was a whole panoply of ailments um, that, if, that patients were really su suffering from, and I felt powerless um, to help them lose weight. And so I, I really wanted to delve into the science um, of, of weight management. And so I want to start out with just um, setting some, um, some definitions for, for how we're going to describe um, weight and obesity. So generally, um, this uh, shouldn't come as a surprise, you know, we describe that as body mass index. So weight in kilograms over height in meters squared. And then there's different categories, um, starting with a body mass index of 25. We would consider those patients to be overweight. And then there are three classes of, um, of obesity. And most importantly, a body mass index um, over 40 would be classified as uh, morbidly obese. There are some caveats to using um, the body mass index uh, for assessment of weight. As you can see here, and these are two patients that have the same body mass index, but as you can see here, there's much more um, visceral adipose tissue that's really closely um, associated with the intra-abdominal organs, whereas this patient on the bottom has much more subcutaneous fat tissue. And, and we know from decades of research that this um, intra-abdominal visceral fat is much more metabolically active and, and harmful, so simply using body mass index may kind of um, miss uh, uh, you know, some different metabolic risks that patients may have depending on where the fat is actually deposited. And so you may want to consider another me measurement of patients um, like uh, waist circumference is probably the easiest and most practical tool you can use in the clinic. Um, body mass index may overdiagnose obesity in muscular individuals and also may underdiagnose it in patients that are um, sarcopenic, such as the frail um, elderly. And it may not uh, inherit address appropriately inherent differences um, between genders and also between some um, different racial and ethnic groups that may, at lower body mass indices, um, have higher uh, metabolic risks from that excessive fat tissue. And so this is not an exhaustive list, but I just wanted to, you know, put this up. And I think everybody in this room that sees patients, um, you know, for all a variety of conditions, 
Um, I would argue that probably those conditions, if, are, if not driven primarily by weight, probably are made substantially more challenging to treat um, by patients' excessive weight. And so um, regardless of whether those are metabolic diseases primarily or biomechanical diseases, um, you know, these are really driven. Many of the, the chronic diseases that we deal with every single day um, are driven by patients' excessive weight. And so um, this is an important slide that I wanted to share that really demonstrates, and this is not just, this is uh, showing the risk of di type 2 diabetes, but this could, you could put up a similar slide for many other metabolic conditions that the, there's really a linear association essentially with body mass index and the risk of developing type 2 diabetes at increasing body mass indices really it takes off quite abruptly at a body mass index starting at 25. And it's not only metabolic risk, it actually is overall mortality. And you can see here, um, this is mortality ratio, and you can see, again, starting at a body mass index of about 25, the overall all-cause all mortality risk begins to rise substantially at a body mass index of 25 and is extremely high um, at that body mass index again of 40, which classifies um, patients as being morbidly obese. And so I think it's, it's very important, um, I've learned, um, counseling patients in the clinic is to really sort of um, try to give them a realistic framework and describe to them that they don't need to lose 30% of their body weight to begin to accrue um, benefits in the way of decreased metabolic risks. So those benefits probably um, begin to happen at uh, weight loss starting at around 5%, actually. And so um, research has increasingly shown us that um, weight loss with that, that little uh, amount, 5%, it leads to increased sensitivity to insulin at the level of the liver, the skeletal muscle, the adipose tissue, uh, increasing optimization of the function of beta cells, decreased intra-abdominal uh, fat tissue, um, removal of triglycerides from the liver. And so this has several clinical benefits for us, uh, a lower A1C, increased HDL, lower triglycerides, and probably overall decreased oxidative stress, which um, has been associated, as, as you know, with cardiovascular disease, cancer, and, and other diseases. So I want to specifically talk about the hypothalamic control of weight, because I think that's an important um, concept and topic to really understand well um, in using weight loss medications. Um, but I first want to start out with um, mentioning, and I think many of us um, would tell these same stories, that patients, when we talk to them about losing weight, they'll say things like, I can't seem to lose any weight. I lost a lot of weight, but I regained it all. Nothing works. I've tried everything. I've tried diet, exercise. Um, please help me. You know, what can I do to lose weight? And so I think it's, um, we could all you know, share stories like that. Um, so I think it, um, to understand uh, why this is so difficult, uh, we can turn not just to molecular biology, but actually to anthropology. And so, and I think it's important to impart to patients that this difficulty is not a, a, like a moral failing, um, but this is actually hardwired into the human body. And so I find that this resource by Jared Diamond, so he's the author of Guns, Germs, and Steel. Um, he wrote another excellent book called The World Until Yesterday, looking at traditional societies um, and trying to understand how those societies live because they um, uh, live you know, in a closer manner to how human beings lived hundreds of thousands and millions of years ago. And what he said is that under the traditional conditions of starve and gorge existence, those individuals with a thrifty genotype 
would be at an advantage because they could store more fat in surplus times, burn fewer calories in the Spartan times, and better survive starvation. And so those um, people that could maximally extract calories and operate with the with peak metabolic efficiency, um, those uh, you know those genes were selected for, and those because those uh, human beings survived better under those conditions. So. Um, that was the starting point, and then um, the past century has really allowed us to understand exactly where in the body um, this, this is hardwired into. And so uh, that work started really in the early 20th century with Dr. Joseph Babinski and Dr. Uh, Alfred Freilich, who were um, neurologists. And what they found was that they, they kept noticing um, that patients they were treating with hypothalamic tumors were morbidly obese. So they um, suggested that perhaps the hypothalamus played an essential role in the maintenance of weight and metabolism. And that led to several more decades of research leading up to the 1940s when scientists ablated, destroyed um, mice, uh, the mice, the mouse hypothalamus, which resulted in massive overfeeding in those mice, uh, and the mice became markedly obese, which um, again suggested that the hypothalamus plays a, a critical role in the maintenance of weight and metabolism. And so that led to some additional work to try to discover um, biochemical molecules that were involved in this, um, this important set point, per se, in the hypothalamus. Uh, and that led to the discovery of leptin, which is produced by the adipocytes, the fat cells, and it was found to bind to receptors um, in, the, uh, in the hypothalamus. Um, and what they saw was that mice that had a mutation in this gene became massively um, obese. So there was a lot of excitement at that time that this was the holy grail, that all we had to do was treat overweight and obese patients with leptin. But unfortunately, the story was not that simple. And when we examined um, people that were overweight, and this is increasing body fat, those individuals actually had higher le leptin levels rather than, than low, suggesting that um, those patients are most um, patients that are overweight and obese have a problem of leptin resistance and not deficiency in leptin. So there's only, unfortunately only a very few um, select patients with a monogenic form of obesity, um, leptin deficiency can be adequately treated with leptin. And so um, that led to several decades uh, uh, further research um, identifying uh, multiple additional uh, hormonal factors responsible for um, the maintenance of weight. And so all of these factors here feed into ultimately the hypothalamus, which leads to, as you can see my son here, um, chowing down on some pizza. You know, so this leads ultimately to changes in feeding activity and energy expenditure. And you can really think of those um, as being organized into two arms here. So the orexigenic pathway, or the, the pathway that promotes um, increased feeding and decreased energy expenditure. Probably the most important hormone here is made by the stomach called ghrelin, but there's a number of other um, hormones here. Um, and this interfaces uh, somewhat with an opposing pathway called the anorexigenic pathway that promotes um, decreased um, feeding intake and um, increasing energy expenditure. And that, again, is led by leptin, but there's a number of other hormones um, as well as vagal inputs that are very important. And those signals um, you know, all orig originate from a multitude of places in the body, not only the fat cells but also the gut, the intestines, uh, the pancreas, the gallbladder, the stomach, as well as the upper um, alimentary system, um, really starting out with the olfactory system and the, and the taste buds, actually. So these, all of these are um, producing this cascade of hormones that interface and ultimately lead um, to increased or decreased feeding and then 
increase or decrease energy expenditure. And so this was an, an important and interesting observation that um, physiologists had um, back in the mid-1990s. And this, again, illustrates why it's very difficult for patients to lose weight in general. And so um, um, several dozen volunteers were uh, either overfed or underfed. And what was demonstrated was that, um, patient, interestingly, patients that lost 10 to 20% of their body weight had a decreased resting energy expenditure. And so, again, that was probably the hypothalamus trying to maintain a certain set point in weight and trying to reduce the body's overall loss of um, uh, energy stores. And so probably what's happening is there's a suppression overall of anorexigenic hormones and an enhanced activity or levels of the orexigenic hormones feeding into the hypothalamus. So that leads us to weight loss pharmacotherapy and trying to modulate that hypothalamic set point. And so I wanted to sh start off by sharing this. Um, this is the, the guidelines that are put out by the Obesity Society and the American Heart Association, um, really advising us as, as to how to organize our thinking as to treating patients. And so it's recommended, you know, starting at, again, that body mass index of 25 when patients are overweight, and certainly if they have comorbidities of excessive weight, that's the point to in institute some kind of a substantial lifestyle change. But starting at a body mass index of around 27, and, uh, if patients have some weight-related comorbidity, hypertension, sleep apnea, and diabetes, you would want to consider at least uh, beginning a medication for weight loss. Whereas with bariatric surgery, you would seriously consider and counsel patients potentially to pursue bariatric surgery starting at a body mass index of 35 if there's some comorbidity. So I just wanted to very briefly mention this, this concept that will kind of pop up again and again in different studies that I'll mention. Intensive lifestyle intervention is kind of a vague term. So what, what exactly does that mean? In general, it's modeled on the um, Diabetes Prevention Program, which is a very important study from the, uh, the early 2000s, 2002, which demonstrated that um, we could, th um, through intensive lifestyle changes, mostly frequent individual meetings, um, providing education on nutrition, exercise, and behavior, and 150 minutes of moderate exercise that we could um, allow patients to lose 7% of their body weight and reduce their risk of progression to type 2 diabetes from a pre-diabetic state by, by about a third. So that was a very exciting study, and that's really been used as the model for intensive lifestyle intervention. So the goals of pharmacotherapy are really, number one, to facilitate weight loss in combination with those behavioral, dietary, and lifestyle changes, and um, I would argue most importantly to prevent weight regain. Um, an important point to make is that short-term treatment for um, really less than six months has not been demonstrated to produce any long-term health benefits, um, although there are some medications that are approved for short-term use. Um, it's, there's a general, there's a recommendation not to, you know, pursue that strategy of treatment um, based on the available scientific evidence. So this is a timeline um, really demonstrating how we've, um, the approval of uh, weight loss medicines, and this is not an exhaustive list because many have been, as, you'll, as we'll talk about later, have been pulled off of the market, but in the, starting in the 1950s, uh, several um, stimulant medications were approved um, for short-term use only and then there were, um, we've, you know, there were several decades that passed before we have any medicines that have stuck around, um, Orlistat or Ally um, in the over-the-counter formulation, also known as Xenical and the prescription strength, came about in the late 1990s. And then over the past decade, we've fortunately had a few more medicines come on board, Lorcasrin or Belvique, Qsimia, uh, also known as Fentramine topiramate, 
uh, Contrave, and then uh, most recently, Liraglutide or Sexenda. And so this demonstrates the mechanisms by which each of these medications work. And these are the FDA-approved um, medications for chronic weight loss. Um, so Orlistat is a little bit of a, it's a special medicine. It works um, uh, sort of differently than the other ones do. Um, and it's important to point out that it is really not to any appreciable degree absorbed systemically. And so it really acts at the level of the gut by inhibiting pancreatic and gastric um, lipase enzymes, promoting calorie malabsorption. And then the other four medicines really all work to promote satiety and, and satiation. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, Lorcaserin and um, fentramine topiramate, it's important to point out, are DEA Schedule IV medicines, so they are controlled substances. substances. Um, Lorcaserin interfaces with um, serotonin receptors in the central nervous system. Fentramine has a stimulant action, so it promotes the um, release of norepinephrine. And topiramate, which as many of you know is Topamax, is a very effective anti-epileptic, modulates um, GABA receptors in the central nervous system. Um, Contrave, or naltrexone bupropion, is a medication that um, interestingly combines an opioid receptor antagonist, and many of you know it from um, its use in substance abuse and dependence, um, has been shown to be very um, effective at interfacing with an important hormone called pro-opio-melanocortin that I showed a few slides ago. And then it's combined with a medicine that we know well as Welbutrin, an antidepressant that has um, an effect to um, stimulate increased levels of norepinephrine and dopamine, um, which has the effect, again, centrally to promote satiety and sati satiation. Liraglutide is, is a, um, an interesting medicine. Uh, many of you may know it. Uh, the same molecule is approved under a different name called Victoza for type 2 diabetes. Um, this is a GLP-1 receptor agonist, and this is a hormone made in the gut, which um, not only has effects directly in the gut to slow um, gastric and intestinal motility, but also, again, acts centrally in the brain to promote satiety and fullness. So how do we select um, a medication for a patient that's eligible and interested for pharmacotherapy? Um, you want to evaluate what's the overall target weight loss goal for patients, and as I'll show you, there are different uh, expected degrees of weight loss. What are, any, what are some off-target benefits that you may want to provide to the patient? As I showed you, um, you know, topiramate was one of the components, for example, of Qsimia, and that is not only an effective anti-epileptic, but very effective for uh, migraine headaches. So, for example, a patient with migraines may benefit from using that medication in particular. Um, contraindications uh, for patients, and we'll go through some of those, and um, potential side effects that would be bothersome or very problematic for patients. And um, affordability, um, and as many of us know that use these medications, as I'll talk about more in a few slides, um, having prescription drug coverage for these medicines is a big problem for many of our patients, and that's a major barrier. And so this is a slide that kind of demonstrates overall what we expect in terms of um, the efficacy of these medicines. And this is percent weight loss over placebo um, or control patients. And, and this is, these are obviously heterogeneous populations from different trials, but it gives you sort of a sense of how powerful each one of these medicines is. It's been pretty consistently shown that fentramine topiramate is the most powerful um, one of these medications, followed closely by um, liraglutide sexenda and naltrexone bupropion. Um, I put in here, just for reference, um, the look-ahead trial, which was a different, uh, different trial looking at a, a patient, a patients with type 2 diabetes who were obese um, 
and there was only lifestyle change implemented in that particular trial, was useful sort of as reference um, and sort of uh, trailing behind a little bit are Lorcaster and Belvique and, and Orlistat. So you really don't get nearly as robust uh, weight loss with these two medicines as with the, the three that are on top here. Um, I really can't emphasize enough that um, these medicines really have to be, uh, really should be used in the setting of intensive lifestyle change. And so this, you could, I could put up a slide for each one of these medications, but this trial um, shown in the New England Journal uh, specifically relates to Lorcaster and Belvique use. Um, and this arm here in, in blue shows lifestyle changes alone. So they lose a, a significant amount of weight, um, but patients with Lorcasterin, using Lorcasterin, they were also um, given the same lifestyle uh, counseling, um, lost significantly more weight. And then when those patients uh, went back to the, um, at year, after year one, went back to the placebo, um, you know, they were only able to achieve that level of weight loss essentially seen by the placebo group. This just reemphasizes that it's much more powerful and useful for patients um, to use these medications in, um, in conjunction with those intensive lifestyle changes. It's, it's very important to monitor these patients very carefully after they've started the medication. So it's recommended that after about 12 weeks, you reevaluate how patients are doing on these medicines. And so you'd probably consider uh, patients that have lost less than 3% of their weight as being overall non-responders to the medication. So at that point, you'd want to consider strongly discontinuing the medicine, depending on how they're tolerating it. You may want to change to an alternative medicine um, or potentially increase the dose if you've not yet maximized it, if there's potentially a trend for weight loss. Um, Responders would be, you know, would be considered at about over 3% um, in terms of their weight loss. You want to ask them, you know, are the side effects tolerable? Are they getting appreciable, um, you know, benefits, um, off-target benefits as we discussed? Have you achieved their goal weight loss? And then at that point, you obviously discuss with the patient maintaining that current res regimen depending on the trajectory of weight loss versus potentially increasing the dose if you can, if they're tolerating it well or potentially adding in an additional um, medication as well. And we'll talk a little bit more about um, how that may play out. So I think it's important at this point to discuss um, barriers to pharmacotherapy, and there are really some important barriers that you should consider. Um, and this is a very interesting slide demonstrating that um, really these medicines are dramatically, I, I think, underutilized. 46% of Americans qualify for treatment based on the criteria that we discussed yet only 2% actually receive a prescription from their pharmacy. You can see here the eligible population in the United States is as high as 45%, but yet this is the amount that are actually receive a prescription from the pharmacy. And that, um, just shown for reference here, um, patients with type 2 diabetes you know, make up a much smaller percentage of the population, um, yet the proportion of patients receiving medications is really dramatically higher. So why is this? I would, I would argue that one of the most important limitations is um, prescription drug coverage. And um, commercial carriers, unfortunately, um, commonly exclude these medicines from their formula formularies despite proven efficacy. And this is one major carrier that I found. Um, this is for their 2018 kind of prospectus to their um, clients. And they said, the premium formulary will continue to offer coverage for all categories and classes except weight loss and cosmetic medications. So unfortunately, weight loss medicines, I think, are still um, 
by some considered to be sort of you know superficial and cosmetic medicines. Um, and again, I think this sort of goes back to the the problem. It really took many decades for obesity to be considered a chronic disease. It was really not until about 2013 that the American Medical Association recognized obesity as a as a true chronic disease. And this is very interesting. Um, I didn't know this before I prepared for this talk, but um, it's actually written into the Medicare law, um, into Medicare Part D, that weight loss medication um, uh, is excluded specifically by that law unless the patients have some kind of um, supplemental that has like enhanced coverage of some kind that will allow them access. In terms of Medicaid, it's really state dependent as to whether, and so individual states can decide whether they want to offer coverage for these medicines. <laughs> And so on this slide here, this, this really demonstrates um, nationwide Medicare, uh, Medi excuse me, Medicaid coverage, um, not only for pharmacotherapy, but for bariatric surgery and nutrition counseling for um, patients that are obese. And so as you can see here, so blue means that the state is, is offering coverage. So there's a lot of blue here for bariatric surgery, um, pretty good amount for nutritional counseling, but there's a lot of yellow here, which means that it's not specifically covered um, for pharmacotherapy. If you look very closely, you can see that Vermont here um, is one of the states, unfortunately, that does not offer um, coverage of these medications. Um, but right next to it, fortunately, um, New Hampshire does, in fact, but it, it does require prior authorization uh, to obtain those medicines. Public perceptions have been, I think, also a big problem, and some patients are quite skeptical of using some of these medicines, and that really goes back to um, what's happened over the past several decades, and there's been a lot of bad press about um, medications used for weight loss. And I think that you know probably goes back to uh, at least the 1970s, um, where amphetamines were widely you know used in the 60s and 70s for weight loss, but they were found to um, obviously have not only harmful side effects but to be quite addictive. And now they've been moved to um, essentially uh, a Schedule II status, so um, very difficult to access for uh, weight management. Um, many of you know, uh, probably remember, Fenfen was a, a widely used medicine up until the 1990s, very effective, widely used, um, but unfortunately was found to have substantial cardiovascular and pulmonary toxicity. Um, it caused pulmonary hypertension and cardiac valvular abnormalities, um, mostly due to the fenfluramine component, although fentermine, this component um, um, has been found to not be associated with those specific adverse side effects. And so fentramine has remained um, FDA-approved since the 1950s. And then more recently, there was a medication called sibutramine, um, again, which was a stimulant medicine widely used up until about 2010. And it was unfortunately found to have significant cardiovascular and cerebrovascular toxicity. So that's been since removed um, from the market by the manufacturer. And so um, I wanted to discuss or illustrate some of these um, issues that we've talked about so far with the case. And so this is you know, very similar to the patients that we're seeing every day at the Weight and Wellness Center. This is a 42-year-old man that's had difficulty losing weight. And one of his primary concerns is that he may develop uh, type 2 diabetes in the future. He tells you that he's about two years ago, he tried a commercial weight loss program. Um, he went to the gym every day, he lost 40 pounds, and then regained, regained it all. He has intense nighttime cravings and snacks before bedtime. So you evaluate this patient and you um, determine, and he expresses a strong interest in uh, weight loss medication. Um, 
first you evaluate his, his history and um, get some objective data. With the relevant past medical history, he's got prediabetes, hypertension, depression, um, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, some chronic constipation, as well as attention deficit disorder, family history notable for a strong uh, history of diabetes, and so that's led to this specific concern on his behalf in multiple overweight family members. He's on lisinopril, metformin for the prediabetes, and Adderall for his ADHD. Notably on exam, uh, he is uh, obese by body mass index. His blood pressure is not well controlled. He has a waist circumference of um, 44 inches, and really above a, a waist circumference of 40 has been, you know, to, associated with substantially increased metabolic risk, again, due to that high amount of intra-abdominal um, visceral fat. Labs notable for a, um, a A1C elevated into the, the pre-diabetic range. LDL um, is really not optimal, and his triglycerides elevated as well in a low HDL. So overall, this biochemical and physical exam picture consistent with the metabolic syndrome. And so at this point, you've um, he... He technically is a candidate for bariatric surgery, but he's really not interested in that. So you um, institute some intensive lifestyle um, counseling, and, and he is going to implement those changes, but he's eligible and interested in weight loss medication. And so this is, this is really what we do in the clinic, and we kind of go through each one one by one. And this is, of course, assuming that he would have coverage potentially for these medicines. Um, so first you would consider Qsimia, fentramine, topiramate, the pros being, again, that it would offer the most significant weight loss of all the medicines that we've talked about. Um, the cons being that he's already on a stimulant, namely Adderall, so the risk of um, precipitating substantial tachycardia, um, anxiety, or and certainly worsening hypertension would be high in, in this patient. For naltrexone and bupropion, the pros would be that it would actually significantly help with his nighttime cravings and what he describes as food addiction. Um, it's been found to be very helpful in, in that setting um, and may help with his untreated depression given, the again, the bupropion, the Welbutrin component. Um, the cons would be that in the short term, this medicine has been um, shown consistently to cause, um, in the first um, couple of weeks, worsening hypertension, although probably over the long term, um, the blood pressure does trend down overall. But that's important to, um, to monitor patients for worsening hypertension when you begin to use it. Liraglutide or Saxenda would, again, offer fairly significant weight loss. Um, it's been demonstrated in an important trial um, several years ago to reduce the fibrosis associated with NASH and fatty liver disease, so potentially could um, positively impact the natural history of that disease. And, um, but the cons being that it's a daily, once-a-day daily injection, and it, it is quite expensive um, for patients that don't have good formulary coverage. For Orlistat, um, the pros would be that it's over-the-counter, it's relatively inexpensive, um, again, has few systemic side effects because it's not systemically absorbed to any appreciable degree. Um, it may help him with this chronic constipation overall, but the cons being um, that sort of that, that effect could be um, bothersome to him, and patients can have stool leakage and diarrhea, and those are um, side effects that happen really in a large percentage of patients, which has really limited the, um, the overall uptake and use of that medicine. Lorcasserin or Belvic, um, again, um, overall has a pretty small absolute weight loss potential, and so we don't really use it that often, and it is quite expensive in general. Um, the pros being that has, it has really few systemic side effects. And so this patient decides, um, after a lot of consideration, to begin um, Sexenda. 
uh, 3.0 milligrams uh, once a day. And I think primarily, you know, for this patient, he was interested in that effect, that impact on the potentially the fatty liver disease, the non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. He also begins an intensive lifestyle intervention program. But the weight loss um, has stalled at about 5% at 24 weeks, um, which does happen with, you know, these medicines eventually, you know, patients kind of reach a nadir and they reach a new steady state. Um, over time, and this, you'll see this with really any of the medicines that we use, but he's not happy with that 5% and you think it's reasonable, um, and he's interested in, in augmenting it with potentially another medicine. And so he decides again, because he has chronic constipation, to begin Orlistat 60 milligrams a day, um, once a day with dinner. So this is sort of a, illustrates a typical um, time course for a, a patient that you know, uh, succeeds uh, using these medicines and eventually becomes a good responder. And so, again, you reevaluate this patient at week 12 when he's doing well. He's lost about 5% of his body weight, but then uh, begins to sort of stall after that time point. And uh, 12 weeks later, um, you know, you decide together to try to intensify therapy by adding, again, that Orlistat to allow him to accrue um, that benefit of losing overall 10% of his body weight. So this would be a very good outcome. So I want to pause at this point and, um, you know, sort of discuss specifically some of the resources that are available at Dartmouth-Hitchcock for, for weight management. Um, and so under Dr. Rothstein's leadership, we, um, the Weight and Wellness Center has really flourished over the past several years since it was um, started. And there are now two, really two um, sites. There's a newer site down at Manchester um, and then the main site down, um, just down the street at Heater Road. And um, so it's really a multidisciplinary team. I really want to emphasize that. And we, we do um, the referral criteria. Um, it's really only at this time a body mass index equal to or, or greater than 30. Um, so patients are evaluated. And we do um, frequently refer patients um, and help support their, their journey to bariatric surgery and other um, potentially endoscopic interventions. Um, and then we institute um, through two separate um, programs here, again, those, that intensive lifestyle um, uh, change that I, that I sort of outlined. And um, these are just two different programs that kind of are different in terms of how they're organized and in terms of the time course. But they all incorporate the essential aspects of the diabetes prevention program. We frequently use um, weight loss medications as part of the individualized treatment plan for patients. Um, one of the things that I've been closely involved with has been an integrated type 2 diabetes clinic um, where I help support um, other providers in their, weight, their efforts to help patients to lose weight, but also really optimize their diabetes and ensure that they're on an optimal um, weight um, diabetes medicines that are um, weight uh, negative in general that promote weight loss in patients. And then um, under Dr. McClure's leadership, we also uh, thankfully have a culinary medicine program that's been very important to impart essential um, skills to patients to help them prepare um, healthy food options. Another essential part of our um, Weight and Wellness Center overall is a clinical registry and a biobank that um, um, obtains blood and stool samples from patients um, at the baseline when they first see us in clinic and then um, throughout their time in, in the, um, the clinic with us, and that allows us to uh, will allow us over time to really assess um, and determine what are the most optimal uh, ways for, for patients to lose weight and really um, help us to identify potentially different biomarkers and so forth to optimize and tailor therapy um, for each individual patient. So I want to stop there. Um, we ended a little bit early, and I'd be happy to um, take any questions that you might have.
Yeah, Jack. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Uh, is there anything we can do to enhance the chances of drugs getting covered by insurance as far as workup and how we how we uh, classify the obesity and so forth? Yeah, that's a good question. So the question was about um, how we, as providers, can really opt, you know, try to um, give patients the best chance to have their weight loss medications covered. Um, I don't think there's really, unfortunately, any rhyme or reason. Um, and I've, you know, unfortunately spent time writing very detailed, you know, letters to insurance carriers. Um, there seems to be very little flexibility, unfortunately, at this point. Um, you know, certainly, as I mentioned, for Medicare patients, but even commercial carriers um, seem to be if they've made that decision not to, to carry the medicines, it's, very, it's unfortunately been very unlikely to have them approved for patients. Andy, we support <clears throat> the bariatric surgical program, and we're integrated, and it's been great. But uh, unfortunately, a few number choose surgery. But when they've chosen surgery, there's often a recidivism to weight regain. What can you tell us about the use of the pharmacotherapy in follow-up to surgery? So, so sequential therapy, you do surgery, and then move people quickly into pharmacotherapy with that. Yeah, that's an interesting question about using um, weight loss pharmacotherapy agents sort of upfront after patients um, have undergone bariatric, bariatric surgery to prevent weight regain. Um, to my knowledge, there's not any, and certainly there's no guidelines that you know really um, give us any a clear roadmap for how to do that. Um, and unfortunately, so I, I think. Um, I've never actually had a patient right, you know, fresh out of bariatric surgery. I've never treat, really treated them um, up front. You know, what I would say is that, you know, patients that have type 2 diabetes, for example, many of them, you know, go from being on tons of insulin to virtually nothing overnight, fortunately. And so for those patients, oftentimes if they can be, for example, restarted on metformin um, after the surgery, I will try to reinstitute that um, to sort of, again, help them maintain um, that weight loss over time. Um, and I've, I personally have found the GLP-1 receptor agonist to be very safe and um, an effective following bariatric surgery to prevent, um, certainly to allow for um, some weight loss if they've stalled. Um, and probably it's been helpful for, to prevent weight regain as well. But yeah, there's not a lot, interestingly, there's not a lot of guidance. It's a really um, good area for research. I think a great clinical trial area in thinking of what could help people who have chosen to go through surgery. I think our culinary medicine program is another intervention that could, prior to surgery, if you randomize groups, you could see if culinary competency actually changes the outcome after surgery. I mean, there are a number of things that we could do with that. Yeah. Right? Um, Andy, we have seen, we refer um, a fair amount of our patients with weight recidivism um, after bariatric surgery to the Weight and Wellness Center for Medication Management, and many of them quite well. Um, previously, we didn't wait um, when their weight plateaued and it wasn't what was anticipated. Um, now we have we initiated the referral earlier, so yeah, it's working very well. Okay. It is when they've regained. One, one thought is could we just do the surgery and start pharmacotherapy immediately and see what happens? Or how you, you would have a predictor over a little bit of time to see what happens with some weight regain intervening at an earlier time than an abundant amount of weight regain. Some interesting options there. Good projects for some fellows. <laughs> I wonder if you could comment on, um, on, on following. If you look at the first slide that you showed us, yep. this red wave marching across mm -hmm. time yes. and the country, um, and that was just the color scheme. I'm right. not asking any screen anywhere. <laughs> 
if you look at that, then the response um, to this, uh, this epidemic uh, is fairly typical medical, which yeah. is something has happened, let's get some yeah. drugs or rarely surgery, and that will take care of it. <laughs> it just strikes me as being kind of really fundamentally inadequate not for an individual who you're facing, you know, right now yeah. in the clinic. Right. But, uh, this just seems like a, a massive problem that can't possibly be addressed by super expensive medications and yeah. side effects and you know, lots of medicalization uh, along the way. So, yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree wholeheartedly that it's, um, you know, really optimally it shouldn't, this shouldn't be the intervention. You know, it really should start, um, you know, at a population health level to promote healthy lifestyles. I mean, it's easy, easier to, um, easy to, you know, for me to say that rather than, to, you know, to come up with a plan to do that. But I think it, you know, really starts, um, you know, um, with children in schools, you know, taking out sugar-sweetened beverages from, um, you know, from schools, I think that's been an important um, change that we've seen over the past several years. Fortunately, to you know, um, reduce the rates of obesity in, in children, it's really, I mean, uh, it's really disheartening to see that all, not only the rates of obesity in adults but in children just um, go up seemingly exponentially over the last few years. Um, but there's a lot of problems with you know, um, access obviously to healthy foods. Um, as I saw in West Philadelphia, that, you know, um, for many of the patients that I was seeing, there just were not options for patients to purchase healthy foods, and um, there weren't places for people to walk safely, to exercise. Um, you know, it's easy to, to say that, but I think it's difficult for many patients in practice. So I agree that you know, public health interventions um, should be the foundation of, of, of kind of turning the tide against that wave of obesity. Yeah, thank you. So yeah. when the, the patients have a perception that exercise is critical. I, I, I know the data hasn't been there, but I was curious, how do you guys perhaps handle that question from patients about exercise versus their weight? Yeah, that's a great question. So the question was about, um, you know, how to sort of handle um, the role of exercise. And, you know, so a lot of, I think it's, it's really one of the myths of weight loss that all a patient has to do is exercise. And so patients themselves will say, well, if I could just get to the gym, if I could just work out every day, and I'd be able to lose weight, um, but the, really the data doesn't support that unless you're doing some extreme form of exercise. Really, patients don't tend to lose um, heart, really hardly any weight, and so I really we impart to patients that um, exercise is essential to maintain weight loss, and that's really one of the important goals. Um, it's really in weight maintenance, not not in weight loss itself. Yeah, good question. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, so a two-part question. One was about um, why, um, sort of what are the recommended activities that patients take, take part in uh, to promote weight loss. And so, um, again, our sort of the model is the diabetes prevention program, which um, it, it's a little bit vague in terms of what they recommend, but it's um, 150 minutes of moder what's called moderate intensity exercise per week. And so how, the, how it's defined in 
And that particular trial was um, something like brisk walking or riding a bicycle. And that's sort of a, as detailed a recommendation as they, as they gave. Um, so the second part was about, you know, sort of why there's not better nutritional um, coverage. Um, it was depressing on that map with a lot of yellow. So a lot of, you know, Medicaid, um, you know, states are not, not covering this nutritional counseling. Um, I, I really, I don't have a great answer. If I was um, in charge of deciding, certainly I would, um, that would be the cornerstone of management for patients. Um, you know, fortunately for many of the patients that I'm seeing with type 2 diabetes, um, that is something that, you know, typically is, easy, you know, covered at least yearly visits with a nutritionist to review, um, you know, healthy, life, healthy lifestyle and nutrition habits. Um, but it's, it's kind of depressing, I agree. It was only within the last few years that Medicare would cover in-office sessions for counseling about weight management. Before that, you couldn't get paid at all, you know, from the federal uh, Medicare reimbursement. But the state-by-state state on Medicaid and then insurers do what they will do. Um, very important. It seems like the best um, strategy to get more widespread coverage for medications would be a robust database, both looking at long-term harms um, to help alleviate some of the concerns about medications from the past where we didn't really appreciate right. the harms until much later. Um, and also um, looking at something beyond what you might consider an interim benefit of weight loss, sort of the equivalent of hemoglobin A1C or blood pressure, and looking at really meaningful clinical outcomes that, that you wouldn't see uh, unless you looked over the long term. You know, looking at heart disease, um, kidney disease, yeah. liver disease, consequences of obesity. So what do we yeah. have now? And what's right. in the works for developing that evidence base? Um, yeah, that's a great question about, you know, sort of developing a, a more robust overall database that would capture clinically meaningful outcomes over time for patients treated with medicines. Um, unfortunately, um, to my knowledge, there's not anything like that that exists, and it's kind of left at the discretion of the individual drug manufacturers um, to, you know, to sort of capture that data. And what's required at this, at this stage Fortunately for um, for patients is a demonstration at least um, this you know this is I think a too low of a bar but that they're safe from a cardiovascular perspective so that's how the trials currently are designed for the most part are to um, to ensure that the medicines are safe but they're not currently designed really to um, capture a long-term um, cardiovascular and metabolic um, um, benefit for the most part. I mean, most of them are only about two years in length. Um, but I, I agree that it would be really optimal to have some kind of a centralized um, database to capture that data over a long period of time. That's yeah, a great point. Uh, first of all, thank you for a, a really very clear and helpful talk. I, I have uh, questions for you about referring patients and cost. Um, one is the various services, if, if we refer a patient and that you had a menu of services, mm -hmm. are the services mostly covered by various insurance? And the second part is on the drug part, is the reason insurance companies have been so reluctant to fund the more effective drugs because they're worried about a lifetime of high cost as opposed to over later health benefits? And second, are some of those um, brand name drugs about to 
become available generically that you think will lower the cost and then make them more coverable by drug companies, by uh, insurance companies? Yeah, so that's a, um, some great questions. So um, I'll, I think address your second question first about um, the cost of weight loss medications and whether it's about the sort of generic status. Um, and so, uh, fent so fentramine um, is, is available as a generic medication, and we do um, um, prescribe, you know, sometimes for patients that would really benefit from, for example, Qsimia, fentramine, topiramate, we can prescribe them separately. Um, you know, there's not a specific precedent to support that, but it, it makes sense at least based on the, the trial data from the combined medications, so sometimes we do um, do that. I'm not aware, you know, Orlistat is... Um, I don't believe it's yet. It's over-the-counter, but not yet generic, but probably will be soon. So that may help um, for patients that are eligible and interested. But the other medications were probably, you know, somewhat far off. I mean, as you saw, they were mostly just approved in the last 10 years, so we may be some, some time off from that. And when you get into these discussions with the insurance companies, what is their rationale for saying, no, we're not going to cover this even though you may be able to demonstrate a long-term yeah, it would, I think it would be very interesting to be in the meetings for how they decide that. Um, probably there's a concern, again, like you mentioned, about you know, the long-term use. I mean, these medicines, as I mentioned, really are designed for chronic use. So when patients ask me, how long am I going to be on this medicine, I say, we, we don't know. You know all, all we know is that I mean, they um, should be taken, again, for that trial length, which is two years, but probably it's going to be indefinite use. Um, we don't know when the hypothalamic set point resets for good. Um, and so I think, you know, um, insurers are nervous about that. And if all patients that were eligible decided to, to you know, go on medications, um, you know, I think they're afraid of becoming overwhelmed by the costs. Um, but that's a great, um, great question. Yeah. It's a very interesting talk. It's a quite interesting topic. Um, so one factor, though, at least my understanding, is it's also a big contributor is uh, socioeconomic status. So that uh, obesity is certainly, uh, well, seems to be at least much higher, the lower your socioeconomic status. Has it been examined that what if there are obese people who are able to improve their socioeconomic status, are they also able to uh, reduce their weight? Uh, that's a great question. So the question was about um, patient, you know, looking at the you know, socioeconomic um, um, improvement of patients and whether that overall um, has correlated to you know, decrease weight, and um, I'm not sure I can answer that question. Yeah, I mean, one one would expect again that if patients you know have easier access to you know more uh, you know safer and better opportunities to exercise to obtain you know healthy food options, that they that they would. And I think that again goes back to the fact that you know we should really optimally be intervening at a population health level. Um, but I unfortunately haven't you know seen that my, in my own patients enough. Um, to really give you a good answer. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in the long-term efficacy of um, medication for sustained weight loss, and maybe I, I missed it, but um, is there evidence that shows that it is effective past, say, five years for sustained weight loss? Yeah, those are, so the question is about, you know, kind of um, assessing the effects of these medications over many years, whether they're still effective. Um, 
I guess I only have sort of anecdotal evidence about that because these, these are medicines are generally not studied for more than, as I mentioned, about two years or a little bit longer. Um, I would say anecdotally uh, they can be very effective. You know, I have some treated some patients that have been on a weight loss medicine for four to five years, and they're able to, you know, they're able to maintain their weight, um, you know, but that's, you know, dependent on some other variables, like are they able to maintain, again, those lifestyle habits that they've, um, you know, implemented as well. But I, I have personally seen patients maintain that, that weight loss over time. It can work as long as you continue to take them. I mean, when yeah. the medicines are stopped, that really there's a lot of recidivism after the medicines mm -hmm. are <coughs> yeah. um, There's another question. So, so if you gain hypothesis was correct, you would expect weight, weight gain since early on in life. And that's certainly true for many people, but there's also lots of people who gain weight only later in life. So do they have then a different syndrome or so? Or how do you reconcile it? Um, so the question was about weight gain at different periods of life and the hypothalamic set point. Um, so I don't have a good um, good answer. I mean, you know, I've kind of over, probably oversimplified it dramatically um, as to what what's happening. Um, but I think you know some of that may probably has more again to do with you know socioeconomic um, life circumstances that you know maybe you know a patient that. Um, you know, as a young child, had good support, good exercise opportunities, good nutrition. You know, as an adult, you know, just had access to higher density caloric food, less um, less exercise opportunities. So probably, it, my guess would be, it does not have to do with the hypothalamus necessarily, and probably is more so due to the um, due to external factors. So, so weight loss in the elderly, right? As, as, and there's so it's such an interesting balance. You need about. 6,800 kilocalories a day to maintain. But we eat 2,000 to 2,400, depending on who you are. So you're always ingesting, not everyone here, but as a rule, two to three times the amount of calories you need, which if you can expend those calories, you have to get rid of those calories or you will gain weight. So there is an expenditure of calories over your time. And this, there is a balance. It's not clearly just what goes in and what you use up. But there is this need to keep a fairly tight relationship between calories in and calories used from when you're 25 years old to when you're, say, 75 years old. And so there, there are so many factors in that. Your microbiome might change. And your microbiome is probably related to about 20% of your weight. Uh, and there are trials of fecal transplant that have been done in urine models that have shown changes in weight based on just changing the composition of your microbiome. They're, they're not human uh, transplants being done yet for this, but there are, of course, for C. diff and for other kinds of illnesses. And one could imagine the ingestion of certain kinds of probiotics or other bacterial uh, things that could help with it all of which feeds this hypothalamic set point. Many, many pieces that interdigitate to that set point. But over time, and in your life, why some people gain weight over that time really probably changes in ratio, opportunity to get to food, opportunity to use up calories, lots of things. There's even a paradox, which is that you should enter your octogenarian years with excess weight. There's a thing called the obesity paradox, which is that you should carry, be slightly overweight as, as you go into your older years, possibly for reserve, possibly for other 
immunologic or metabolic benefits, uh, you know, but there is this, there's data on the paradox as you get to your elder years. It's a great topic. I obviously enjoy this topic. Thank you, Andy, for being here. Thank you.